Hey, good morning. Welcome to Riverridge Church. If this is your first time, we're glad you're here. If you've been here forever and ever, we're glad you're here. And more and more folks are watching online, so welcome to you who are watching online as well. I was living in Morgantown, West Virginia at the time, and it was near the end of the summer, and my dad had purchased a water ski boat for his cottage in northern Michigan. And so at the end of the summer, nobody was going to be going up to this cottage anymore, and so we decided, me and a couple of buddies, that we would go up and get the boat and bring it back to Morgantown so we could ski in the late summer and early fall on Cheat Lake. And so it was about 10 o'clock at night, and we all piled into a Chevy Blazer. It was myself, Ben Toole, Dirk Mercer, and Walt Mays. And so we left at 10 o'clock at night, and one guy drove, one guy kept him awake. We folded down the seats in the back, and two guys slept. We got to about the halfway point, woke up the guys in the back, one guy drove, one guy kept him awake, two guys sleeping in the back. And then we get to Michigan, northern Michigan, and we go out on the lake, and we live on this lake, or this lake, the cottage is on this lake called uh, Crooked Lake, a small lake, but it's connected with this place called the Inland Waterway. And so we get on the boat, and we go through three rivers and two lakes, and five or six hours later, we are on Lake Michigan. And at Lake Michigan, where we come out, is right where the uh, lower peninsula of Michigan meets the upper peninsula, the bridge there, the Mackinac Bridge. And so we go out to the Mackinac Bridge, we go around it, and we have no business being out on Lake Michigan on a 19-foot water ski boat. I mean, we are going up the waves and down the waves and up the waves and down the waves. And then we go back five, six hours back on this boat trip. We get back to the cottage. It's probably dinner time, eight, nine o'clock, maybe a little bit later. We go to sleep for 10 hours. We wake up, we water ski and tube the whole next day on Crooked Lake. And then once again, we have an overnight road trip back down to Morgantown, West Virginia. And that was an absolutely awesome trip that we went on. And I've been on a lot of different road trips and you probably have been on road trips as well. But the thing about being on a road trip is it's not so much the destination, but it's about the people that you're with. It's the conversations that you have. It's the memories that you make as you're on a road trip with different people. And so one of the neat things that came out of this road trip is that one of the guys on the trip was a guy named Dirk Mercer. And this is a picture from the trip that we were water skiing. So Dirk is there water skiing behind the boat. And I know, had known him for a couple, two or three years before this. Um, but then he and I really forged a friendship on this trip and through some other things. Uh, and he came to Charleston to start River Ridge Church. And this is a picture of Dirk starting River Ridge Church for our first service. And he was the worship leader. And I look back on that road trip and I think, man, there were so many things that happened. And the stories, and we meet, when we meet up, the four of us, the stories that we tell and the memories that we have. And I share that because this morning we are starting a road trip. And it's a road trip with Jesus. And I want to give you a sort of a preview of what this is going to be like. Because road trips, really, as I said, are about the experiences that you have, the people that you're with, the people that you meet on a road trip. And so over the next eight weeks for the course of the summer, we're going to meet some amazing people. This morning, we're going to meet a scholar. And we're going to listen in on his conversation with Jesus. Next week, we're going to meet a dad who had some doubts about Jesus. Then we're going to meet throughout the course of the summer, we're going to meet a prostitute. We're going to meet a millionaire. We're going to meet a guy who is possessed by a demon. We're going to 
attend a dinner party with Jesus, and we're going to meet a guy who hated Jesus with everything that was in him. And over the course of all of these stories, we're going to see and discover who Jesus is. And here's the thing is, when you open up your Bible, you have stories and stories about who Jesus is and what he said and conversations and teachings and so forth. But the stories that are recorded of the interactions are all there to make a point. Every one of them in your Bible is there so that you can discover something about maybe who Jesus is, maybe understand something about God, maybe understand something about yourself, maybe understand something about how God wants you to relate to people or how God wants you to relate to God himself. But every story is there for a purpose. And so over the course of this summer, we're going to take this road trip together. But the road trip will not just happen here on a Sunday morning. When you walked in, you got a green little bookmark that looks like this. And it says, 40 stories about Jesus that everyone should read. And what you have here is this is an opportunity for you to take this road trip throughout the summer. Say, what are the 40 stories? If I was to read 40 stories about Jesus, what would they be? And so we picked out what we feel like are the 40 kind of biggest stories. And so on the front, it has just four questions to ask. You can get a journal and write these out. And then on the back, there's a little check mark, week one, week two. And I encourage you to go on this road trip with us throughout the summer. And so here's an interesting kind of thing. I, I told this story a few minutes ago about taking this road trip with Jesus, or taking this, I'm sorry, taking this road trip with Ben Toole and Walt Mays and Dirk Mercer. Or I told you this story about them, and you were listening and, and listening politely, but to tell you the truth, I could read on your faces that you weren't that engaged in the story. You were like, eh, that was nice for him. I didn't go on that trip, right? But here's the thing. The reason that that story was not that interesting to you was because you weren't there. Like, I could pick up the phone and reminisce with any of those guys for 30, 42 hours, and talk about the stories that we did and what happened and laugh about it. But you weren't on the trip, and so you're like, oh, that's a nice story for Matt. And I share that with you because as we go on this road trip this summer, I want you to engage in this road trip. Listen to the messages. Read the stories. Engage and follow Jesus as he moves around Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and these different places that we will find him in these interactions with people. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to take this road trip with Jesus, to listen in on the conversations that he had with people, to hear the questions that Jesus asked, to hear the questions that people asked. Lord, let us see ourselves in these stories. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start today in John chapter 3. So if you brought your Bible, open up to John chapter 3. And in this passage, we're going to meet a man named Nicodemus, who's a scholar. And uh, as, as you're finding that passage, let me talk a little bit about who this message is for. If you're here this morning, and you've kind of asked this question of, what is Christianity all about? Like at the root, at the heart of it, what is Jesus and Christianity all about? We're going to find the answer here. Not what is church about, not what is the Bible about, not what does it mean to pray, but we're going to look in, in this story, see the essence of what Christianity, what Jesus is about. If you've ever asked a question or kind of wrestled with the people in your life who are just really good folks, like there's a guy that I know who's just an awesome guy. He's a great dad. He's a great husband. 
He's involved in the community. He provides well for his family. I've never seen him blow his temper. I've never heard him use harsh language. Never heard him get angry at anybody. A good friend. But yet, so far as I can tell, doesn't have any relationship with Jesus Christ. And I look at someone like him like, what about a guy like that who's just a really good guy? What happens with him spiritually and eternally? And then here's the third person, if this is you. If you're a person who has some questions about Christianity, you have some questions, you're like, I have some things that I would like answered about theology, about the Bible, about Jesus, about, if you ever kind of one of those people that wrestles with things, we're going to see a great model of somebody who wrestles with difficult spiritual Christian truths this morning. So we begin in John chapter 1, excuse me, John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and it says this. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So we're going to talk about this guy named Nicodemus, and what I want us to do to begin with is we need to understand a little bit who Nicodemus is and a little bit about the culture that he lived in, that Nicodemus lived in. And it says, first of all, it says that he was a Pharisee. Now, I want us to take a second. If you've been around church and you've heard Pharisee, the word Pharisee or heard Pharisees described, they're often described as kind of the religious people who are the bad guys. And I want us to deconstruct that a little bit this morning. And yes, Jesus talks about the Pharisees and their hypocrisy, but we have to understand that in the culture that they were in, that the Pharisees were actually very well respected because of the way that they were able to obey the laws of God. They were experts in the law, but they were also experts in obeying the law. Now, 2,000 years later, we look back on them, and we go, ah, they were kind of the bad guys. But at the time, they were held in very high esteem by the people who walked and lived with the Pharisees because they were such good people at obeying the laws. I was trying to think a little bit, like, what would it look like if there was a modern-day Pharisee? What would we, how would we describe the good religious activity of a modern-day Pharisee. And this is what I came up with. He never misses church, never has had a drop of alcohol, never smokes a cigarette, never eats anything unhealthy, never drives over the speed limit, never makes personal calls at work. His house is always spotless inside and out. He recycles all of his trash, eats all of his leftovers, never wastes food, never uses a swear word, not even a one-off swear word like crud or darn or heck, which are substitutes for real swear words. That's how good this guy would be. Now, if you've ever met anybody like that, they're not a ton of fun. <laughs> but you do respect their ability to follow the rules, do you not? That was the Pharisees, right? That is Nicodemus. Give you a little bit more. Is, um, it, there's a part in the book of Matthew... Uh, where Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, and he, and he gives six different laws from the Old Testament. He says, it has been said, and then I tell you. And he expands on them, and he basically raises the level of what obedience looks like. But what's interesting is you look at these six uh, little kind of passages in Matthew chapter 5, is they're bookended with two very interesting statements. I want to read them to you. The beginning one, before he, Jesus talks about these six things, he says, for I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. 
You need to be more obedient than the Pharisees to enter the kingdom of God. And then it ends with this. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's bookended with these two statements. And if you are in this culture listening, you would say, I have no chance of being perfect like God, and I have just as little chance of being as righteous or more righteous than the Pharisees. That these guys were the best of the best of the best when it came to being righteous. In order to get to heaven, you have to be more righteous, more good deeds than the Pharisees. And so as we look again at who this is, it says Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and then it says a ruler of the Jews. He was part of a group of people called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was about 70 people, 70 rulers of the Pharisees who were the best. So the Pharisees were the best of the best. The Sanhedrin were the best of the best of the best. And there's even an indication in here a little bit later that perhaps Nicodemus was even the head person of the Pharisees. So he's the best of the best of the best of the best. I think we're at like five best there. That's who he is in terms of being a good person. Now, what does he come to Jesus for? Verse 2, it says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So it says that Nicodemus comes at night. He's heard some stories about Jesus. He's heard that he's healed people. He's heard some of his teachings. And he comes to him at night and wants to find out who Jesus is. And he comes at night, and most people believe he came at night because he wanted to remain anonymous. He wanted to be under the cover of darkness, not publicly, but just come and ask these questions personally of Jesus without a lot of fanfare. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And be born. So Jesus and Nicodemus are having this conversation. And Nicodemus comes, he doesn't necessarily ask a direct question, but he's asking, What are you here for? What is life about? And it's specifically asking about seeing the kingdom of God. Now, up until this point in time, if you had asked Nicodemus, or if somebody had come to Nicodemus, or Nicodemus was teaching and said, what does it mean? How does one see the kingdom of God? How do you go about getting to heaven? How do you go about entering the kingdom of heaven? Nicodemus would have said, the way that you do that is you have to obey the law as best you possibly can. Obey the law, obey the law. Be as good a person as you possibly can. That's how you enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus turns that idea turns that notion that Nicodemus has had his entire life, and he says, he must be born again. You must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of heaven. Then he continues on, verse 5. It says, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So Jesus here talks about a person must be born of water, and a person must be born 
of spirit. So what exactly is he talking about here? You know, some people have speculated different things. Some people say, well, it's the, the water birth is when you're born from your mother and the spiritual birth is being born spiritually. Some people have said, well, the spiritual birth is when the Holy Spirit comes in you and the water birth is, the, um, is when you're baptized. And those may be possibilities, but more likely what he was doing is Jesus was pointing Nicodemus to a passage in the Old Testament. Because remember that Nicodemus is, the, is one, if not the most foremost scholar on the Old Testament. And so he says, water and spirit, put the dots together, connect the dots, Nicodemus. And listen to this passage from Ezekiel chapter, 20, excuse me, Ezekiel chapter 35, verse 25, and see if this sounds like what Jesus might be referring to in this conversation about being born again and water and spirit. It says, I sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. See, this is the God of Israel talking to them, saying, I will sprinkle you with water. I will give you a new spirit. I will replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. That there will be this new birth, this rebirth that happens in you. It's interesting, Paul will reference this same new birth in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5.17 when he says, you are a new creation in Christ. That's what Jesus is talking about here. That's what he's referencing for Nicodemus. He says, you will have a new life when you are born again. And then it says this in verse 8. says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He's making this reference to the wind, you know, and he's saying, you know, we, can, we can't see the wind, right? You can't see wind, but you can see the effects of wind. You can see when wind blows leaves. You can see when you can feel the wind against your face. You can see, you know, the effects of wind but you can't see wind. And he's saying the Holy Spirit is the same thing. You can't visibly see the Holy Spirit, but you can see the effects of the Holy Spirit. And the effects of the Holy Spirit is that the person's life is changed. So you can see when a person's life is born again because their life will be changed. As Jesus is talking and explaining this to Nicodemus, his whole view is changing because he had this view that be a good person, do righteous things, do the works of God, but now Jesus is changing this and turning it all on its head. You see, when we started out, I talked about how good Nicodemus was, and I did that for a purpose, and here's why. Is that Nicodemus, when it came to being a good person, was the best of the best of the best of the best of the best, right? And if the person who is the best of the best of the best of the best is a good person, but yet doesn't make it into heaven, what does that say for all the rest of us? You see, if the person who is the best behaved person at the time on earth still needs to be born again, still needs to trust Christ, then that's true of every other person that lived then and every other person that lives 
now. That if it's true of Nicodemus, it's true of us as well. That we cannot be good enough to get into heaven. We must be, as Jesus says, born again. And we have a bit of uh, kind of hindsight or a bit more information that Nicodemus had in terms of understanding that Jesus would die on the cross for our sins and we place our faith in him for the forgiveness of sins and what Jesus said and what Paul wrote. But the truth is that Nicodemus had enough here to make a decision, that he understood he was the best of the best, but still he needed to be born again. Then it says this, Verse nine, uh, yes, verse 9. It says, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. And so Nicodemus had the mental knowledge of what Jesus has just said, And Nicodemus had the good living, he lived the right way, but yet he still fell short of what it was that was required of him to believe in Jesus, to be born again. And then we read this in verse 14. It says, And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is making a reference to an Old Testament reference, which to most of us is probably unfamiliar. But here's what he's referring to. He's talking about in the Old Testament, there's a story where the nation of Israel was disobedient. They had rebelled against God in all sorts of ways. And so God sent uh, um, basically poisonous snakes into their camp where the Israelites were living. And these snakes were biting the people, these poisonous snakes, and as a result of being, receiving a bite from a poisonous snake, one would die. And so what happened is that God said to Moses, I want you to make a bronze snake, and I want you to put it on your staff. And I want you to lift your staff up, and anybody who wants to be healed from the snake bite that they've received, this deadly snake bite, all they need to do is to look at the bronze snake on the end of your staff. And if they do that, then they will be healed. Jesus makes reference to this to Nicodemus. Nicodemus would have known, even if you don't know the story or don't know it very well, Nicodemus would have known exactly what Jesus is talking about. Now, at the time the Israelites lived, they had two options at this point. If you're bitten by a poisonous snake, one option would be to do what I had learned in my Cub Scout handbook, right? In my Cub Scout handbook, there was, if you get bitten by a snake... And this is things that times have changed since I was a Cub Scout, but you're supposed to, I remember this, you're supposed to take a knife and cut a two-inch slice in your leg where you got bit, and then cut off the ends, and then you're supposed to what? Suck the venom out, right? Remember that? Anybody else had that Cub Scout handbook? Yep, yep. Okay, right? And so that was 1974, right? I don't know how old I am. That was when I was like eight or nine years old. Not that long ago. Imagine how much more barbaric it would have been about how to treat a snake bite 3,000 years ago, right? 4,000 years ago, whenever that was, pretty long ago, right? So you think you're an Israelite, you have two choices. 
I can get out my Cub Scout handbook, slice up my leg, suck the venom out, or I could just simply turn and look at this bronze snake. Which is simpler to look at the snake? But which takes belief and faith looking at the snake? And so we look at this, and it says, As Moses lift up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. A reference to his being lifted on the cross and crucified, looking to the cross, and whoever believes in him has eternal life. That's all that Nicodemus needed to do, is to look at Jesus to have eternal life, to stop trusting in his own good works, to stop trusting in being super righteous of his own doing, and to look at Jesus Christ. Now, I share all this, and depending how much you know about the Bible, depending on whether you've read this or not or studied this or not, you may look at this and go, that's pretty confusing. Like, we've got this obscure reference to Ezekiel. We've got this reference that I might have heard about in the book of Exodus with Moses and a serpent. That seems a bit confusing. But here's the thing is, for Nicodemus, it wasn't confusing at all. We're not in his culture. We're not in his shoes. And so we had to unpack it to understand a little bit. It wasn't confusing to him. But here's what I love, and this is absolutely brilliant. The conversation with Nicodemus finishes, and look at what Jesus says. Perhaps the most simple statement that Jesus has ever made, the most quoted thing that anybody ever quotes from the Bible, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It doesn't get any simpler than that. That God loves each and every one of us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross. And that if we would believe in him, then we have eternal life. That's the simplicity of the gospel. I want to close by asking you three questions. The first is this. Have you made a decision to receive Christ? Have you made a decision to believe in Christ? You know, what's interesting as you look at this passage is that it leaves it open-ended. As John relays this story, it doesn't say, and Nicodemus prayed to receive Christ, and Nicodemus became a follower of Christ, and Nicodemus, it doesn't say any of that. It just leaves it open-ended. Now, we can look further in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, and in chapter 19, where he's referenced again, and we can make a pretty good assumption that Nicodemus did, in fact, place his faith in Christ at some point in time. But you see, Nicodemus had three simple truths faced with him. You can't be righteous enough. You aren't righteous enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. And being born again means placing your faith in Christ, believing in Christ. And we're faced with those same three truths. You can't be righteous enough to get to heaven. You must be born again spiritually to get to heaven. And being born again means placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And so I would ask you, if you're here this morning, have you made that decision? And if you haven't made that decision, I'd encourage you to make it this morning. I'm going to give you an opportunity in just a couple minutes to make that decision. Here's the second question that I'd ask you to wrestle with. 
is who are your Nicodemus friends? Who are your Nicodemus friends? Who are the people in your life that if getting into heaven was based on being good, they would be in? Because they just live good lives. They do the right things with their family, with their job, with their money, with their safety. With, they just do the right thing. But yet, they don't know Christ. Or as far as you can tell, they don't have a relationship with Christ. Who are those good people in your life? And I would challenge you to pray for them. I would challenge you to look for opportunities to share the gospel, to share this message that being good isn't good enough. That every person, no matter how good, needs to be born again, needs to have saving faith in Christ. And then here's the third question I'd encourage you to wrestle with. is this. It's very simple. What are your questions? What are the things, what are the things that you would like to know that God has the answer to? Because this is a great story of Nicodemus seeking after Jesus and asking questions and keep pursuing it. And I'll give you a bit of a preview of next week. Next week in the message, we're going to talk about a guy who had some doubts. He had some questions on trying to figure things out. And we're going to look at his story a little bit next week. So let's pray together. And I'll close just with this sample prayer. If you'd like to pray to receive Christ, and then I'll pray to close us out. Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe that Jesus paid for my sins on the cross. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I believe in Jesus as my only hope for entering the kingdom of heaven. I understand that my salvation is not based on my works, but on the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It is my desire to live my life for Christ. And Lord, for all of us, I pray that you would show us the Nicodemuses in our lives, that we would have the opportunity to share this message of truth with people, that we would share the message that being good isn't good enough, that we need to have faith in Jesus Christ. We need to believe in Jesus Christ. God, help us to have your outlook on life. Help us to help your understanding of how life works in terms of a relationship with you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.